This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, January 5th, 2021. Coming up, I spoke with Gary Tobbs, science writer and journalist, about his new book, The Case for Keto. Stay tuned for some interesting revelations about a high-fat diet. some of the recent news in science. Many of us are anxiously awaiting our turn for the COVID vaccine, but others are understandably concerned about possible allergic reactions. Concerns about potential allergic reactions are valid for all medications, but for COVID vaccines were initially triggered in the United Kingdom after reports of potential allergic reactions in some people following their vaccination. The British Medical Regulatory Agency advised that individuals with a history of anaphylaxis to a medicine or food should avoid COVID-19 vaccination. In the U.S., the FDA recommended that the vaccines be withheld only from individuals with a history of severe allergic reactions to any component of the vaccine, and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention advised that all patients be observed for 15 minutes after their vaccination by staff who can identify and manage such reactions. The U.S. agencies do not recommend that people with food or medication allergies avoid vaccination. To date, there have been six reported severe reactions to Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine after hundreds of thousands have been vaccinated, despite no such reactions having been observed during phase three trials, during which 20,000 people received the vaccine. All six of those people developed their reactions during the prescribed observation period, all received epinephrine, and all have recovered. Just what does cause an allergic reaction? Well, it's the same system, the immune system, that the vaccine activates. But with an allergic reaction, it's a different part of the immune system. Remember that the vaccine stimulates development of antibodies and cells that are specific to the virus. When you are exposed to an allergen, whether it's pollen, cat dander, or something in the vaccine. Antibodies that are already present in your body will attach to the allergen and stimulate the release of histamine. That's why antihistamines are used to treat allergies. Histamine can then start a chain reaction, which often includes rashes and nasal congestion. Sometimes an extreme response will result in an anaphylactic reaction, where a person's blood pressure can drop to dangerously low levels, and throat swelling can be so extreme as to cause death. So back to the COVID vaccines. A team of allergists at Massachusetts General Hospital, we'll call it MGH, reviewed pertinent background information on the new vaccines. They concluded that the vaccines can be administered safely even to people with food or medication allergies. Let's translate those recommendations into some practical advice. The allergists from Mass General pointed out that allergic reactions to vaccines are rare about 1.3 such reactions for every million people that get vaccinated. Contrast this with about five out of 100 people that are allergic to insect stings. Based on the compounds that are present in the vaccines currently uh, currently available in the US, those from Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna, they expect the same extremely low rate of allergic reaction. A further reassurance is that vaccine clinics will be monitoring all patients for 15 to 30 minutes and can manage allergic reactions that do occur. 
The scientists who reviewed the safety data recommend that individuals with a history of anaphylaxis to an injectable drug or vaccine that contains polyethylene glycol or polysorbate speak with their allergists before being vaccinated. They stress that people with severe allergies to foods, oral drugs, latex, or venom can safely receive the COVID-19 vaccines. Okay, let's back up and talk about those two substances mentioned by the allergists, polyethylene glycol or polysorbate. What are they and why are they in the vaccine? Well, these are both lipids or fat-like substances. In order to get the vaccine into your cells where the RNA can get processed to make the viral protein, which is what triggers your immune response, it has to be wrapped in a lipid layer. This just means a fat globule, kind of like an oil droplet. A lot of medications are packaged this way, and thus there is a history of rare allergic reactions to them. These compounds, like many others, belong to a category the FDA calls GRAS, which stands for Generally Recognized as Safe. A lot of things on the grass list, like water or salt, have essentially been grandfathered in because they've been used for so long with an apparent record of safety. But the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology states, currently there is only limited awareness of the role of polyethylene glycols in reactions to medications where they are present as an ingredient. The degree to which PEG, that is polyethylene glycol, hypersensitivity might be a problem is not well understood. But remember that these are really rare reactions and the danger from COVID is significantly higher. The Mass General Group Review was published last week in the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology. Black holes capture the imagination. They straddle the worlds of science fiction and science fact and were the basis of the 2020 Nobel Prize in Physics. In a recent report from the Kavli Institute for the Physics and Mathematics of the Universe, a paper by an international research team presents an intriguing theoretical study of primordial black holes. These are objects that might have formed in the early universe soon after the Big Bang before stars and galaxies were born. The early universe was so dense that any positive density fluctuation of more than 50% could create a black hole. The primordial black holes formed this way could have a wide range of masses, even less mass than the Earth or Moon, and could be responsible for some of the observed gravitational waves signals and seed supermassive black holes found in the center of our galaxy and other galaxies. It is even possible that the mysterious dark matter which accounts for a large fraction of the matter in the universe, is composed of these primordial black holes. One exciting possibility that sounds like it is ripped from the pages of a science fiction book is that primordial black holes could form from the baby universes created during inflation, which is a period of rapid expansion that is believed to be responsible for seeding the large-scale structures we observe today, such as clusters of galaxies. During this inflationary period, the equations indicate that baby universes can branch off of our universe. Many would eventually collapse and form black holes. For baby universes that are bigger than some critical size, 
Einstein's theory of gravity allows the baby universe to exist in a state that appears differently to an observer on the inside versus on the outside. An internal observer sees it as an expanding universe, while an outside observer, such as us, sees it as a black hole. In either case, the big and the small baby universes are seen by us as primordial black holes, which conceal the underlying structure of multiple universes behind their event horizons. Now remember, the event horizon is a boundary below which everything, even light, is trapped and cannot escape the black hole. In their paper that appeared in the journal Physical Review Letters, the research team showed that the primordial black holes from this multiverse scenario could be observed with current and upcoming telescopes. This team is using the 8.2-meter Subaru telescope on Mount Mauna Kea in Hawaii. A camera on Subaru called the Hyper Supreme Cam is ideal for their work because it can image the entire Andromeda galaxy every few minutes. If a black hole passes through the line of sight to one of the stars in Andromeda, the black hole's gravity bends the light rays and makes the star appear brighter than before for a short period of time. The duration of the star's brightening tells the astronomers the mass of the black hole. With the Subaru telescope, they can simultaneously observe 100 million stars, casting a wide net for primordial black holes that may be crossing one of the lines of sight. Their first observations have already reported a tantalizing candidate consistent with a primordial black hole with a mass comparable to the mass of the moon. If ongoing observations detect more such candidates, it could provide strong evidence that low-mass primordial black holes could account for all of the currently unexplained dark matter in the universe. The new year is always a time for resolutions for good behavior in the coming months, and diet is a perennial favorite. So what better time for an interview with science writer Gary Tobbs, whose new book, The Case for Keto, came out last week. In the book, as you will hear, he discusses the science as well as anecdotal evidence for the ketogenic diet. You'll hear exactly what the diet is, and perhaps counterintuitively, why it leads to both weight loss and improved health. Welcome back to How on Earth, Gary. It's been a couple years since my colleague Shelley Schlender spoke with you here on the show about your book on sugar. And now your new book, The Case for Keto, which is just coming out, has a slightly different flavor to it, if you pardon <laughs> the pun. So let's, let's talk about keto. Oh, thank you, Beth. Uh, I, I, I'd love to. Right. <laughs> so in this book, I'll just preface my first question by saying um, you take a more personal approach. And in fact, you say it's kind of a how-to book, although I found it was 
really a, an in-depth exploration for a how-to book. But let's start off with, with the ketogenic diet itself. Just what is a keto diet? Well, and it's a wide range of things. So I actually define in this book, I'm, I'm discussing carbohydrate-restricted diets in general. So a ketogenic diet is a diet where you abstain from all carbohydrate-rich foods, uh, grains, sweets, starches, and for the most part, you replace those calories with fat. So you're eating a very low-carb, high-fat diet, and it may or may not be what's technically known as ketogenic. Um, we put the word keto in the title of my book. Originally, it was called How to Think About How to Eat. And the idea is it's not really a how-to book. It's, as you were saying this, I thought, well, that's interesting. It's a why-to book. So <laughs> why would anyone consider eating, a, you know, avoiding, in effect, an entire food group? And the argument is that those of us who are predisposed to get fat and have trouble controlling our blood sugar, um, the reason is the carbohydrates in the diet. And if we want to be healthy, we have to mostly avoid them or abstain from them entirely. Yeah, I think that um, an interesting perspective on this comes from my background. I, I trained as an evolutionary biologist many years ago, and there's a lot of evolutionary thinking about diet these days and how our ancestors didn't have carbs most of the year. You know, during the fall season or late summer and fall, fruits would ripen, grains would ripen, and they could forage on those things. And the role of insulin, which we'll get to in a couple of minutes, that's a, a big important part of this whole diet, but the role of insulin was to promote fat storage at the end of the fall season so that they could survive lean times in the winter. And of course, we don't have those lean times anymore. <laughs> but it's interesting to consider that these carbs that are so ubiquitous in our world were really rare for ancestral humans in many places. Uh, yeah, and I would argue they were rare for ancestral humans in effectively all places. So, and certainly until agriculture, uh, you know, several thousand years ago, yeah, we lived on animal products because they were available. Um, so that's, that, yeah, that's the, the gist of it is our bodies uh, aren't designed to accommodate the carbohydrates we consume today. So particularly the sweets, the sugar and the refined grains. And then once we, our metabolism start getting disrupted, our hormonal balance, which sounds a little diet booky, but you know, we're in that range. Um, once that starts getting disrupted, if you want to fix it again, it's pretty much you, you just have to abstain from eating these foods. Some of us can tolerate them fine and can be lean and healthy for a lifetime and a long lifetime. But the argument is those of us who gain weight easily just, you know, it's because of it's through the carbohydrate content of the diet. And so uh, if you want to fix that, those are the foods you don't eat. Right. And so that mechanism is really interesting to me. And since we're a science show, we can jump into that science and delve into it. So can you talk about the role of insulin and how it promotes fat gain specifically? We knew what hormones regulated fat accumulation and fat metabolism, and it's dominated by the hormone insulin. So virtually every hormone works to get fat out of your fat tissue. 
because the hormones are telling your body to do something. Release fat into the circulation where that fat can then be used for fuel. Insulin is a hormone that puts fat in the fat cells, and it does it through multiple mechanisms. It also signals your lean tissue when you secrete insulin. It, that insulin tells your, your muscles and your organs to burn carbohydrates, to burn blood sugar, because the insulin is being secreted in response to eating carbohydrates. And it's telling your body that the carbohydrates are there and that you burn those carbohydrates for fuel. That keeps your blood sugar under control. And meanwhile, it tells your fat tissue to hold on to fat. Yeah, I think many of us, myself included in physiology courses years ago, learned that simplistic kind of homeostatic mantra about insulin, and then it has an opposing hormone that we don't need to worry about today, um, that the role of insulin was just to respond to a carbohydrate meal and tell your cells, including fat cells, to take it out of the blood. And that was just a very oversimplified idea of the role of insulin, which has more recently um, been recognized as a really important. But the obesity nutrition people didn't care about this. Even when they learned about it, they were so dominated by this idea that people get fat because they eat too much and they get thin when they eat less. And that's all we need to know. And so you could find in the textbooks, and I mentioned this in the book, um, where when they talk about fat storage and fat cells, they'll talk about insulin. And so if you wanna get fat into your fat cells, you increase insulin. And if you wanna get fat out of your fat cells, you minimize your insulin levels. But people get fat because they eat too much, as though what's happening to the fat cells is independent of what's happening to the person who happens to be you know, worried about how fat those fat cells are becoming. And all we're doing in this low carbohydrate ketogenic diet world and all I'm doing in this book is saying, look, the same thing that makes fat cells fat is what makes people fat. And if you're going to fix that, that means lowering insulin as low as it can go. And I discussed the rationale there. And that means basically getting rid of all the carbohydrates, except those in green leafy vegetables. And when you're doing that, whether you're measuring ketones or not, you're eating what today we would call a ketogenic or a keto diet. Right. And I think that the, the term you use is actually a little more illustrative. You call it the low carb, high fat diet, which I'm sure will get people's hackles up because we've been conditioned for so long to eat low fat. When that's the thing, eventually, if it's only your patient's who are getting ever more obese, you could assume they're not listening to your dietary advice. This is the conventional wisdom. Nobody follows a diet. And the reason we know nobody follows a diet is because people just continue to get fatter with each passing year. The obesity epidemic is not going away. It's getting worse and worse, which means more and more Americans are getting obese and fewer and fewer are fixing it. But once it starts happening to you, which eventually it does to most of us. Um, then you start saying, well, look, I know I'm following my advice and it's not working for me. So maybe it's not working for my patients also. So maybe, you know, if I'm a good physician and I really care about my health and my patient's health, I should try and find some other way to solve this problem other than telling them to eat less and eat low fat diets and mostly plants and the, the advice that we've been getting for 50 years. So these physicians 
some of them were world-class athletes who got heavier and heavier. And eventually they hit on this low carb, high fat diet. When they do it, they find, they find that the, they, they get healthy. I mean, this is the difference. They, they just, you know, they, they, for the most part, lose weight relatively effortlessly, certainly without being hungry, which is the key to successful weight loss. Um, they're, lipid profiles, their cholesterol profiles improve, their blood pressure comes down, their blood sugar control gets better. Um, virtually every chronic disease marker tends to improve on these diets, which fits with the idea that you brought up that we're not, we're not evolved to eat these refined grains and sugars. So when you remove them from the diet, you tend to fix the chronic disease problems that they cause. And um, anyway, then they, they prescribe it to their patients and they find out that the same thing happens to their patients and it begins to become a movement, which is what it is. Now let's, let's give our listeners an idea of what this diet includes. So maybe, I, I'm sure there's no such thing as a typical day for you in terms of what you eat, but maybe just a couple examples of the things you would eat following this low carb, high fat diet. Standard dinner where you go from eating chicken and green vegetables and mashed potatoes to a larger portion of chicken and a larger portion of green vegetables with like butter or olive oil on it. So it's basically not eating the potatoes and replacing those calories with a larger portion of, you know, and it's, oh, you switch from a skinless chicken breast, which is relatively low fat to chicken thighs, which with the skin, which is relatively high fat. And the portion size stays the same. Um, anyway, so that's it. It's a, the, you, you're not eating the potatoes for dinner and you're having more vegetables or a bigger salad. And um, it's a difficult way to eat if you're a vegetarian or a vegan, but it's not impossible. By right, any. right, yeah. Um, lunch is the same thing. Instead of having a chicken salad on bread, you have a larger portion of chicken salad without the breads or hold the fries and the broccoli and give me a salad. And so I'm having more green vegetables than I ever had. So there's no way that's an, a less, less healthy diet because I'm not eating the potatoes or I'm not eating the rice or I'm not eating the bread. And when you find out when you eat this way, because your insulin stays low, this is a assumption. Um, and you have the, your fat tissue is perfectly content mobilizing the fat that it's stored so you have it available to burn all day long. It's like you've got this sort of internal source of fuel that's locked away from you when you're eating a carb-rich diet, but is available when you're not. Now you just burn fat all day for fuel and you're not hungry. Well, and one of, when I talk to these physicians, one of the things they are, because there are different ways to break people into this. So fundamentally what you're doing is more or less rigid abstinence to the, to the sugars, grains, and starches. And again, the more or less depends on, you know, how unhealthy you are now and how healthy you want to be, whether you want to abstain entirely as, or whether you want to try to, you know, moderately reduce what your, the, the carb content. But uh, the physicians I talked about, a lot of them said that when they're, when they're getting, trying to get their patients to do it, they'll, they'll, some of them will ease them in slowly. Some of them say it works better if you just jump right in, like jump into the deep end, as 
is a way to, to get used to it quickly, which is how I did it. But in getting used to it slowly, they said, if I can get them to switch breakfast. So instead of eating a breakfast of, you know, cereal and skim milk and orange juice and uh, toast with jam, which are basically multiple varieties of carbohydrates and sugar, if I can get them to eat eggs and bacon, and what they'll find is instead of if they eat lunch at eight in the morning, instead of being hungry again at 10 or 10.30 and having to snack, they'll find that suddenly it's like one o'clock, two o'clock, maybe even three in the afternoon and they're not hungry. Right, right. And it's not because that food was so satiating, which it is, but it's because they didn't elevate their insulin and they've got their fat, the, this excess fat that they've been storing away for years is now available to be used for fuel. And their bodies, it's like they've increased, they've suddenly gotten access to a, a fuel tank that until now has been locked away from them because of the carbohydrates they've been eating. Right, yeah. And, and one of the things that you point out in your book, and I want to uh, emphasize as we talk, is that people are different, you know, we're all different genetically. And that means we're going to all be different in terms of how much and what types of hormones we produce. And so like you said earlier, some people can eat carbs and stay lean, but some people can't. And so if you can't, then, you know, this book is more for, well, I want to say the book is really interesting. And I think everybody should read it. But in terms of a diet book, it's more for the people who have whatever their particular hormonal balance is that predisposes them to gain weight on carbs. And as you're just saying, you can eat a perfectly healthy diet that is really low in carbs and burn through that fat. Yeah. And that, again, the argument I'm making is that for some huge proportion of those of us who, who fatten easily, um, I have a brother who, when we were in college, used to joke that he could never got stuffed. He just got bored of eating after a few hours <laughs> and he didn't put on weight. And I did. He never got over 190 pounds as a, he was three inches taller than I am. We both played football and I got up to 240 because we were built differently. Right. Right. But yeah. different genes there. <laughs> um, the, uh, but the point is those of us who fatten easily, it's, it's, even though we're all different, it's it's going to be the carbs and the diet working through insulin that's a driving factor in most of most to all of us. And you know, whenever you hear of people who lose significant amounts of weight, even on sort of low-fat, high-carb diets, or the opposite way of thinking, um, or vegan or vegetarian diets, one of the things they all have in common is they get rid of sugar and refined grains. Right, which is a, a really good thing to do for anyone, regardless yeah. of the way. And no, nobody, would, nobody would complain if you said, well, you know, I got rid of sugar and refined grains, I don't eat many starches anymore, and I eat a lot of whole foods. Right, and like, right. That's a healthy diet. It just so happens that the whole foods that are left are, you know, green leafy vegetables and, and, and uh, you know, the sort of uh, carb-free, high-fat and protein animal products. Right, which is, which is a great synopsis for your book. And uh, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there, Gary. It's been really fascinating to talk to you. I will put a link to your upcoming book on our website. And thank you so much for talking. Beth, this has been great. Thank you very much for having me.
That was science writer and journalist Gary Tobbs talking about his new book, The Case for Keto. He discusses his personal experience with his high-fat, low-carbohydrate diet, which produces both weight loss and improved health metrics for many people. The book includes many personal stories from people with long-standing issues of weight control who used various permutations of the diet to achieve a stable, healthy weight. I'll link to the book in the show notes. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. I'm the executive producer for the rest of this month, and I produced this week's show. Additional contributions from Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Weird Al Yankovic. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett.